In this bonus episode of Nullius in Verba, I will read chapter 5 of John Desmond Bernal's book The Social Function of Science. Bernal, who was born in 1907 in Ireland and died in 1971, made substantial contributions to X-ray crystallography. He was also a pioneer in the science of science, and his book The Social Function of Science from 1939 quickly became a classic. Although it might be less known among meta-scientists than later work by, for example, Robert Merton, I believe it deserves a wider audience. And for this reason, I will read chapter 5, titled The Efficiency of Scientific Research, in preparation of our upcoming podcast episode on research waste. The whole recording takes a bit more than an hour and a half. If you prefer to listen to the most relevant section, you can skip to Lack of Coordination in Science, that you'll find at one hour and six minutes. Enjoy! The Social Function of Science by J.D. Bernal, 1939 Chapter 5 The Efficiency of Scientific Research Once we admit any function for science in society, it is possible to ask whether that function is being carried out efficiently or inefficiently whether the results obtained are the best obtainable with the human and material resources available. Our judgment of the degree of inefficiency of science will, however, largely depend on our ideas as to what the function of science is. Nevertheless, without prejudging that issue, which is the central problem of this book, it is still possible to talk of the efficiency of scientific research in relation to the different hypothetical functions of science. Three aims for science. Psychological, rational and social. Science as an occupation may be considered to have three aims which are not mutually exclusive. The entertainment of the scientist and the satisfaction of his native curiosity, the discovery and integrated understanding of the external world, and the application of such understanding to the problems of human welfare. We may call them the psychological, rational, and social aims of science. The social effectiveness of science will be the subject of a later chapter. What concerns us here are the other two aims. It is clearly impossible to estimate in any strict sense the efficiency of science with respect to its psychological aim. Nevertheless, as psychological satisfaction plays an important part in the carrying on of scientific research, it needs to be taken into account in any discussion of the general efficiency of science. That scientific research is profoundly satisfying to all who choose to undertake it is undeniable. On the whole, people choose to be scientists precisely because they anticipate this satisfaction. It is not, however, of a kind peculiar to science. In almost every profession, there are opportunities for the exercise of a disciplined curiosity intrinsically no different from that exhibited in scientific research. The growth of the profession of science to its present dimensions is not a sign of a spontaneous increase in the number of individuals gifted with natural curiosity, but of the realization of the value that science can bring to those who finance it. For this purpose, the psychologically pre-existing natural curiosity is utilized.
Science uses curiosity. It needs curiosity. But curiosity did not make science. Oddly enough, it's not until comparatively recent times that scientists themselves have sought to justify science on the basis of the psychological satisfaction it brings. Originally, science was justified because it was for the glory of God or the benefit of humanity. Although these claims really amounted to implicit acceptance of the psychological justification, explicitly they brought science into relation with divinity or utility, which were conceived to be, at the times in question, the general social ends of man. The scientists of the 17th century had obvious reasons for insisting on the utility of science, as they alone saw its possibilities and needed the external support which could only be gained by pointing out its material benefits. They had to uphold this practical aspect against detractors like Dean Swift, who ridiculed the scientists of the time for occupying themselves in vain and unprofitable fancies. Nevertheless, there is no reason to believe that the scientists did not honestly think their work of benefit to society, nor had it occurred to them that the success of science could be put to any other uses. The Ideal of Pure Science This early confidence began to be shaken in the 19th century, when it became apparent that science could be, and was being, put to base uses. Its place was taken by the idealism of pure science, science without thought of application or reward. Thomas Henry Huxley voices the feelings of the Victorian scientist in his persuasive prose. In fact, the history of physical science teaches, and we cannot too carefully take the lesson to heart, that the practical advantages attainable through its agency never have been and never will be sufficiently attractive to men inspired by the inborn genius of the interpreter of nature to give them courage to undergo the toils and make the sacrifices which that calling requires from its votaries. That which stirs their pulses is the love of knowledge and the joy of discovery of the causes of things sung by the old poet, the supreme delight of extending the realm of law and order ever farther towards the unattainable goals of the infinitely great and the infinitely small, between which our little race of life is run. In the course of this work, the physical philosopher, sometimes intentionally, much more often unintentionally, lights upon something which proves to be of practical value. Great is the rejoicing of those who are benefited thereby, and for the moment science is the Diana of all the craftsmen. But even while the cries of jubilation resound, and this flotsam and jetsam of the tide of investigation is being turned into the wages of workmen and the wealth of capitalists, the crests of the wave of scientific investigation is far away on its course over the illimitable ocean of the unknown. Thus, without for a moment pretending to despise the practical results of the improvement of natural knowledge and its beneficial influence on material civilization, it must, I think, be admitted that the great ideas, some of which I have indicated, and the ethical spirit which I have endeavored to sketch in the few moments which remained at my disposal, constitute the real and permanent significance of natural knowledge.
If these ideas be destined, as I believe they are, to be more and more firmly established as the world grows older, if that spirit be fated, as I believe it is, to extend into all departments of human thought, and to become coextensive with the range of knowledge, if, as our race approaches its maturity, it discovers, as I believe it will, that there is but one kind of knowledge, and but one method of inquiring it, then we, who are still children, may justly feel, if our highest duty to recognize the advisableness of improving natural knowledge, and so to aid ourselves and our successors in our course towards the noble goal which lies before mankind. Methods and Results, pages 54 and 41. In another sense, the ideal of pure science was a form of snobbery, a sign of the scientist aping the don and the gentleman. An applied scientist must needs appear somewhat of a tradesman. He risked losing his amateur status. By insisting on science for its own sake, the pure scientist repudiated the sordid material foundation on which his work was based. Science as Escape With the general disillusionment which set in after the war, even the idea of pure science began to pale. The development of psychology seemed to show that the pursuit of knowledge was simply the carrying into adult life of infantile curiosities. A grandson of Huxley, writing of scientists, can make one of his characters say, I perceive now that the real charm of the intellectual life, the life devoted to erudition, to scientific research, to philosophy, to aesthetics, to criticism, is its easiness. It's the substitution of simple intellectual schemata for the complexities of reality of still and formal death for the bewildering moments of life. It's incomparably easier to know a lot, say, about the history of art, and to have profound ideas about metaphysics and sociology, than to know personally and intuitively a lot about one's fellows, and to have satisfactory relations with one's friends and lovers, one's wife and children. Living's much more difficult than Sanskrit or chemistry or economics. The intellectual life is child's play, which is why intellectuals tend to become children, and then imbeciles, and finally, as the political and industrial history of the last few centuries clearly demonstrates, homicidal lunatics and wild beasts. The repressed functions don't die, they deteriorate, they fester. They revert to primitiveness. But meanwhile, it's much easier to be an intellectual child or lunatic or beast than a harmonious adult man. That's why, among other reasons, there's such a demand for higher education. The rush to books and universities is like the rush to the public house. People want to drown their realization of the difficulties of living properly in this grotesque contemporary world. They want to forget their own deplorable inefficiency as artists in life. Some drown their sorrows in alcohol, but still more drown them in books and artistic dilettantism. Some try to forget themselves in fornication, dancing, movies, listening in 
others in lectures and scientific hobbies. The books and lectures are better sorrow drowners than drink and fornication. They leave no headache, none of that despairing post-coitum triste feeling. Till quite recently, I must confess, I too took learning and philosophy and science, all the activities that are magniloquently lumped under the title of the search for truth, very seriously. I regarded the search for truth as the highest of human tasks and the searchers as the noblest of men. But in the last year or so, I have begun to see that this famous search for truth is just an amusement, a distraction like any other, a rather redefined and elaborate substitute for genuine living. And that truth seekers become just as silly infantile and corrupt in their ways as the boozers, the purists, the businessmen, the good-timers in theirs. I also perceive that the pursuit of truth is just a polite name for the intellectual's favorite pastime of substituting simple and therefore false abstractions for the living complexities of reality. But seeking truth is much easier than learning the art of integral living, in which, of course, truth-seeking will take its due and proportionate place, along with the other amusements like skittles and mountain climbing. Which explains, though it doesn't justify, my continued and excessive indulgence in the vices of informative reading and abstract generalization. Shall I ever have the strength of mind to break myself of these indolent habits of intellectualism and devote my energies to the more serious and difficult task of living integrally? And even if I did try to break these habits, shouldn't I find that heredity was at the bottom of them and that I was congenially incapable of living wholly and harmoniously? From Point-Counterpoint by Aldous Huxley, pages 442-444. to Here it is recognized that science is being used mainly for the enrichment of the few and the destruction of the many. Consequently, its ultimate justification is that it is quite an amusing pastime. This attitude, though rarely admitted, is actually extremely widespread among scientists, particularly those in the safer and more comfortable positions. Science is one of the most absorbing and satisfying pastimes, and as such it appeals in different ways to different types of personality. To some, it is a game against the unknown, where one wins and no one loses. To others, more humanly minded, it is a race between different investigators as to who should first wrest the prize from nature. It has all the qualities which make millions of people addicts of the crossword puzzle or the detective story, the only difference being that the problem has been set by nature or chance and not by man, that the answers cannot be got with certainty and when they are found often raise far more questions than the original problem. If we examine the present state of science from this point of view, it must be admitted that on the whole it is fairly satisfactory. The only complaints of the scientists are on purely material grounds. Given an adequate salary and fair security of tenure, together with no obligation to perform any specified tasks, the scientist would be happy enough. 
From what has already been said, even these conditions are not available for the majority of scientists, but they are available for quite a number, and they represent a perfectly attainable ideal. If the game were the only thing that mattered, the major inefficiencies from other points of view, the lack of apparatus or information, the lack of any general plan or direction, and the failure to coordinate science with other human activities are all immaterial. Actual material deficiencies can be considered extra hazards added to the game. Overcoming them is itself the education of the scientist. The condition of his work make it particularly convenient for him to take this point of view. But the danger of treating science purely as a game is that playing games as a life work does not often bring lasting or full satisfaction. Men require to feel that what they do has a social importance as well. Even a supreme performer such as Morphy could get no satisfaction out of his success because he could not bear to be regarded as only a chess player. Science and Cynicism Nevertheless, sufficiently narrow specialization and the inclination to make the best of whatever means are available still assures to many scientists a relatively happy time. Some not so limited in their views may yet accept this attitude deliberately. Whenever I look out at the window, a professor once remarked, I see such misery and mess that I prefer to bury myself in my own work and to forget about things that, in any case, I could do nothing about. To others, the scientific attitude towards scientific research leads to a cynical admission of the complete futility of science itself, an attitude which expresses itself in theories attempting to prove the impossibility of exact knowledge and the failure of determinism or even of a simple causality. Ultimately, this view reduces science to a more or less ornamental, but in any case quite useless outgrowth of civilized society. Yet it is clear that whatever the scientists themselves may think, there is no economic system which is willing to pay scientists just to amuse themselves. Science must pay its way just as much as any other human activity, though the payment need not always take a purely material form. The prestige of science and its moral and political influence have also to be taken into account. The Technical Inefficiency of Science It is only the narrowest specialization or the most complete social cynicism that makes it possible for the scientist to accept the present conditions of scientific work with anything approaching satisfaction. Judged by our second criterion, the most rapid development of scientific knowledge as a whole, the inefficiency of the system cannot be glossed over. Most of the scientists' work is in fact wasted, either for the immediate lack of apparatus or assistance or because it is not adequately coordinated with other work, and finally there remains a considerable chance of its being entirely lost in the mess of unreadable scientific literature. Bad Organization if we try to examine more closely the inefficiency of science as a method of discovery, we find that it originates in two major defects. 
The first is the totally inadequate scale of finance, of which we have already spoken. The second is the inefficiency of organization, which ensures that these small resources shall be to a large extent wasted. This last remark may seem to the scientists something approaching treason. Even if it were true, it should not be publicly stated, for the little that science gets now, it gets as the result of the belief in its effectiveness. Once it is suspected that scientists waste the money that is given to them, they will not be able to get even that much. Yet the gentleman's agreement to gloss over the internal inefficiencies of science is bound to be disastrous in the long run. However carefully concealed such things are, they are always suspected and give rise to an attitude of vague distrust on the part of possible benefactors and the public at large, which is far more damaging to science than openly brought charges. In a similar way, the elaborate ethical codes which oblige doctors to support one another in all circumstances and never to admit the existence of statistically inevitable errors and the equally inevitable appearances of scoundrels and fools in the profession only results in deepening distrust of official medicine and plays into the hands of quacks and charlatans. More important, however, is the consideration that without a really effective internal working organization, scientists will never be able to get for their profession the recognition they think it deserves or the additional finance which it so urgently needs. The reason for the present situation of scientific research is not far to seek. Scientific activities have in detail grown in a spontaneous way, while the organizations to coordinate these activities have not been planned beforehand, but have grown up with the development of science itself, always at a slower rate than the activities they organize. This is a general picture of the development of human institutions, but in the case of science it is aggravated by peculiar factors. The personal interests of the scientists are extremely diverse and they are at the same time far removed from those of administration. There is a natural reluctance on the part of scientists to take time away from their detailed work in order to attend to the problems of organization. Consequently, these are for the most part left to a small number of rather poorly paid officials and to committees of older scientists no longer in contact with contemporary movements. The inefficiencies of scientific research are more extensive than intensive. The closer to the individual scientist and his work, the greater the degree of efficiency. The larger the field surveyed, the greater the inefficiency. The actual growth of science has been such that it is now being cluttered up and hampered by its own past and current productivity. This shows itself for the most part in the relation between different kinds of work rather than in the work itself. Laboratory waste of skill Even in detail, however, there is considerable waste due to a large extent to false economy. Poor equipment and lack of a sufficient number of laboratory assistants and mechanics ensure that a large number of scientists spend much of their time in mechanical and routine tasks at which they are not necessarily very efficient and which, in any case, delay their proper work. 
It may reasonably be objected here that this is sometimes a blessing in disguise, that intensive scientific work consisting only of significant observations and manipulations is too much of a nervous strain, and that the necessity to carry out other occupations slows down the work to a pace which is more humanly desirable. Yet surely the choice of routine work should be left to the scientist himself to determine. There is no need to prevent him carrying out mechanical tasks, but he should not, in normal circumstances, be required to do them. This situation is difficult to remedy, mainly because the economic aspect of scientific work is not strictly compatible with that of a profit-making society. A scientist receiving £400 per annum may be obliged to waste three quarters of his time because he has not an assistant costing £150 per annum. Though the arrangement is grossly inefficient to the university or government body concerned, the difference is simply one of an expenditure of £400 or £550 per annum and as there is no way of showing on the balance sheet the value of the work done by the scientist, the first figure will usually be preferred. Certain traditional ratios between scientific staffs and assistants have been set up, but they are on the average far too low. They fail to take into account the increasing mechanization of modern science and the consequently increasing demands on extra scientific assistance. The same criticism applies with even greater force to mechanics, who are never employed in laboratories to the most advantageous extent. Here is a clear case of absolute wastage of money. A laboratory mechanic, who can make most of the simpler and special forms of apparatus required, can nearly always produce them cheaper, often at a half or a quarter the price, than their cost if purchased from scientific instrument manufacturers. In fact, the only scientific equipment it really pays to buy from the manufacturers are those things which are made on a large scale because of their engineering or other uses, as, for instance, all radio appliances. False economies where it is financially important that scientific results should be obtained, as in the more enlightened industrial laboratories, there is generally no lack of trained assistance. But the fact that such laboratories rarely produce work of scientific value is often taken to be due to this very abundance, and not to the personal and organizational factors which are so effective in sterilizing industrial science. This argument is often combined with the praise of the sealing wax and string school of experimental work. There is no doubt that a certain amount of direct contact with materials and the overcoming of immediate physical difficulties sorts out the effective and ineffective scientists more rapidly than the presence of numerous operatives and assistants. It is also true that many of the greatest experimental discoveries of science in the past were made with extremely crude apparatus. But from these facts one should not conclude that the material difficulties of earlier scientists were the cause of their greatness, or that the creation of difficulties will automatically reproduce it. As science advances, the delicacy of the phenomena it observes continually increases and this puts a premium on the use of more and more elaborate apparatus. Moreover, 
as science advances, the intellectual quality of the average scientific worker must necessarily decrease, because a larger proportion of the population is occupied in science than in the past. Although the prestige of science draws to it men of ability, who in former times would have entered other professions, the growth of science has been far more rapid than could be made up by any such essentials. It is consequently unfair to expect the average scientific worker to force results out of inadequate materials in the way in which the rare scientists of older times were able to do. Scientific puritanism is in the end self-defeating. Salaries of scientific workers Something has already been said about the financial position of scientific workers but it is worth mentioning again here because it is a factor in leading to a lowered efficiency of individual work. It is very difficult to estimate whether the pay of scientific workers is on average adequate. We do not know in the first place nearly enough of what they are paid, but the general impression is that, although graduate students are grossly underpaid for the first few years, Older workers usually receive a salary of between £300 and £600 a year, which corresponds to their modest requirements. It is probably true that for equal ability, a scientific worker could add 50% or more to his salary in other fields of enterprise, but for this loss he is supposed to be compensated by the agreeable nature of his work. It is often argued that, as wealth is the only criterion of importance in modern society, science would only receive its due recognition if scientists' salaries were twice or three times what they are now. But this is confusing cause and effect. Salaries are fixed by the law of supply and demand. Present society does not value science, and consequently it has no reason to pay scientists any higher salaries. Moreover, the scientists themselves have not up till now shown much evidence of their need for higher salaries. They have not even made any large-scale efforts to ensure them either by united action on trade union lines or by the formation of a closed guild system which has been so successful in the case of doctors and lawyers, though the Association of Scientific Workers and the British Association of Chemists and the various scientific institutes represent steps in this direction. It is also somewhat doubtful whether increased pay for scientists would on the whole be beneficial to science, as it would certainly draw into the profession a large number of self-seeking persons for whom at present it offers little attraction. We see enough already of the damage done in science by economic competition not to wish to increase this factor. Whatever justification there may be for the average income of the scientist, it is difficult to justify the distribution of payments between those of different categories. There is too large a spread between the upper and lower ranks of scientific incomes, although this spread is trifling compared with the general inequalities of income. Few professors earn more than £2,000 per annum, and not many research posts are given to honours graduates at less than £100 a year. The bodies employing scientists at such rates excuse themselves by saying that, as they can always find applicants for such posts, they are really doing a kindness to those who would otherwise be doing nothing at all. 
the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research in its research grants treats postgraduate research not as work for which pay is given, but as training for future work, and accordingly only gives grants which are in any case small, averaging £130, when the applicant can show that he can obtain no support from his parents or grants from local authorities or elsewhere. The spread in salaries that does exist, in particular the large jump between a lecturer's salary at £400 to £500 per annum and a professor's at £1,000, is a powerful inducement to internal snobbery and place-hunting in science. A more even distribution of salaries would do much to give science the possibility of an internal democracy which would be far more capable of dealing with its tasks than its present oligarchic organization. Another disability which is even more sharply felt is the insecurity of tenure of scientific posts, particularly of industrial posts and all junior posts. The evils of this system have already been alluded to on page 82, but it certainly contributes to the internal inefficiency of science by the assistance it puts on the achievement of immediate and voluminous results. Too often the promising scientist dare not undertake a piece of work which would, if persevered in, make a notable contribution to the advance of science because he is uncertain whether at the end of one year or two years he may not have to leave his position without anything tangible to show for it. In a more subtle way, the general financial anxiety distracts workers, particularly young and promising workers, and prevents them from acquiring undisturbed calmness of mind which is necessary for ordered thinking. Scientific Institutes Under modern conditions, the greater part of scientific work is carried on in a laboratory or institute containing anything from 4 to 40 scientific workers and occupied with a number of more or less related problems. So far, we have considered only the efficiency of the individual worker. That of the organization of laboratories is probably more significant for the progress of science. At present, the organization of science is in a traditional stage of development. It is passing from the period when it represented a sum of individual efforts to one when it advances by conscious teamwork, through which the contributions of the individual scientists are absorbed in the general result. The laboratory of today rather resembles a primitive factory consisting of a number of independent workers, each with his own tools and supplied with some common services such as power or materials. We can already see a wide divergence of laboratory organization. In some laboratories, almost complete isolation is the rule. Every worker keeps his room locked and many have worked for years without knowing what problems the others are engaged on. In other laboratories, a definite division of labor has already taken place. One worker, for instance, may be responsible for all the spectroscopic work, another for microanalysis, etc. But these occupations tend on the whole to be restricted to a few specialists, the main body of research workers being relatively independent. 
At present, the degree of internal coordination depends almost entirely on the character of the director of the laboratory. At one extreme, we have the autocratic laboratory in which the director treats all the investigators as personal assistants who are given set tasks to carry out from time to time. At the other, the anarchic one, where each worker is entirely on his own, selects his own problems and reports to the director merely as a matter of formality. The danger inherent in the first extreme is that it checks originality and gives no sense of responsibility to the assistants. It is in such laboratories that the greatest exploitation of the work of juniors for the benefit of the seniors goes on. Many scientific reputations have been made almost entirely by skillful collaboration. When, as only too often happens, the director is advanced in years as well as autocratic, the problems attacked are likely to be those which were important 30 years ago. As a result, we find that in any subject, the laboratories which contribute to advance in ideas, apart from routine description and experimentation, are a very small fraction of the whole. At the opposite extreme, the anarchic laboratory is open to disadvantage of a different kind. Without any kind of direction, all but the most able workers have to face the task of finding out what to do as well as doing it. They have to rely too much on their own resources, which, in view of the general intractability of scientific work, may be very discouraging. Such laboratories are apt to produce scientific recluses working at their own problems in jealousy and secretive isolation. Between these extremes, we have a more cooperative arrangement in which the director and the research workers consult, formally or informally, at frequent intervals about the general progress of the work and the means of fitting individual workers into the solution of some common problem. It is clear that this last represents the closest approximation to the kind of organization which will avoid internal waste. But at present, the cooperative research laboratory is rather the exception than the rule. It depends, for its very existence, on the presence of a director of wide foresight and one who is willing to delegate authority. Such men are still all too rare in the scientific world. Except in a few laboratories of this type, there is nothing that corresponds to a comprehensive plan or scheme of work conceived over a period of years as it is impossible to see, except in a general way, what is being done or will be done in the laboratory, it is impossible to coordinate it with work done in similar laboratories in other places or in different laboratories in the same place. Consequently, the attack on many general problems of science which could be carried out by coordinated effort is attempted only by scattered individuals and the result of the work are always incomplete and have to be pieced together with difficulty from a large number of scattered sources. University Laboratories what has been said so far applies in the main to all laboratory work, but special disabilities occur for laboratories in different types of institutions. The main defect of university laboratories is, with some outstanding exceptions, their small size and lack of equipment.
It is from them that the seal wax and string theory of scientific research originated. At every turn, limitation of means hampers work. New assistance cannot be taken on, years may pass before a grant is available for a piece of apparatus. Ultimately, the result is so discouraging as to reduce research to a mouth pottering away at problems. It would probably be no exaggeration to say that nearly half the university laboratories in this country are in this condition. This tendency is aggravated by the dispersal of effort over a large number of laboratories. Such a distribution is extremely uneconomical. There is no opportunity for common services, apparatus has to be unnecessarily duplicated, and there is a lack of contact and mutual inspiration only partly compensated for by the existence of scientific societies. Another characteristic disability of university science is the interference of teaching with research. This is an intrinsically difficult problem, and one to which no simple solution is applicable. It is almost certain that every university teacher stands to gain by undertaking some research, if only to give him the status of a genuine scientific worker in his own eyes and those of his pupils. On the other hand, every research worker stands to gain in learning how to present his results and in appreciating the more general aspects of science by being occupied to a certain extent in teaching. The problem is to determine the correct proportion and choice of teaching and research staff and the correct amount of time in each case to be devoted to teaching and research. As things are at present, the number of teaching posts in the universities far exceeds the number of research posts, with the almost inevitable result of the occupation of teaching posts by workers whose main interest is research and who would take research posts if they were available. University teachers nearly always tend to neglect either their teaching or their research. Many of them are not suited to teaching at all. Others find that the demands of teaching prevent them from giving the continuous thought and interest which is necessary for research. The situation is aggravated in the higher grades because here the demands of administration add themselves to those of teaching and research. This pressure on time necessarily leads to a preference for the greatest amount of routine work possible. Stereotype lectures, the same year after year, interfere far less than a freshly thought-out course, and changes in the curriculum or in the organization of laboratories become almost unthinkable. Effects of Endowments Another difficulty to which research in the universities is particularly liable is that arising from endowments. These are not always an unmixed blessing except in a very large university where it is possible by suitable wrangling to distribute the benefits fairly widely, they are apt to unbalance the course of studies in an entirely irrational way, some of the departments being hypertrophied and others starved. Because of the relative meanness of wealthy Englishmen, the full evils of the endowment can best be seen in the United States, but it is not only there that there is no dollar without a string to it. Even in this country, the atmosphere of patronage makes itself discreetly but effectively felt. 
Except for the older universities, which are sufficiently well-placed both in respect to old endowments and to the honor they can confer on their benefactors, the policy of the university is often controlled not so much by those who have given to it in the past as by those who may be expected to give to it in the future. The development of research in the university will depend on the ability of its professors and departmental heads to extract money from local magnates, quite as much as it does on their scientific ability. Even liberally-minded chiefs hesitate to employ research workers whose activities may cause financial loss to the department. These considerations are particularly potent in regard to economics and the sociological research. For other sciences, the selection and training of research workers is generally sufficient to prevent any unpleasantness on this score, but this is in itself a serious criticism of the system. Government Laboratories the special difficulties which beset scientific research carried out under government control are largely due to bureaucratic methods. Civil service and army methods of administration are essentially unsuitable for the carrying on of research. Research is always an exploration of the unknown, and its value is not to be measured by the amount of time spent on it, but by the output of new ideas thought of and tested out. Regularity of hours or days, clocking in and clocking out with an annual fortnight's holiday is not conductive to original thought. The work of a scientist requires the most irregular hours. Sometimes it may be a matter of wanting to work 16 or 24 hours a day for weeks on end. At others, all the time spent in the laboratory is useless, and the best results would come from going to parties or climbing a mountain. Not only are the conditions of work uncongenial, but the work itself is often of a routine character. Necessarily, government laboratories must do much routine work, but in getting it done, they only too often fail to make any distinction of persons and thus both blunt the abilities of promising research workers and discourage the entry of others into the service. The scientist in government pay gets the worst of both worlds. He does not have academic privileges and he misses the possibilities of advancement and in many cases even the security of tenure of the civil servant. Higher posts are reserved for administrative grades and thus it happens that many governmental scientific workers are directly controlled by persons who have at most a mere smattering of scientific knowledge. In future, it may be worse. The subject of everyday science is being removed from the higher civil service entrance examinations. At the same time, a large proportion of scientific workers are not on the permanent staff, but hold temporary posts or are engaged as students or workers on special investigations. In this case, insecurity of tenure is added to the other deterrents to doing any work beyond the prescribed minimum. It is not surprising that under these conditions many good scientific workers are deterred from entering government service. 
and that nearly all those who can get university posts are willing to accept them at lower salaries than the government offers. Research in industry. Secrecy. Two factors weigh heavily against the effectiveness of scientific research in industry. One is the general atmosphere of secrecy in which it is carried out, the other the lack of freedom of the individual research worker. Insofar as any inquiry is a secret one, it naturally limits all those engaged in carrying it out from effective contact with their fellow scientists, either in other countries or in universities, or even, often enough, in other departments of the same firm. The degree of secrecy naturally varies considerably. Some of the bigger firms are engaged in researchers, which are of such general and fundamental nature that it is a positive advantage to them not to keep them secret. Yet a great many processes depending on such research are sought for with complete secrecy until the stage at which patents can be taken out. Even more processes are never patented at all, but kept as secret processes. This applies particularly to chemical industries, where chance discoveries play a much larger part than they do in physical and mechanical industries. Sometimes the secrecy goes to such an extent that the whole nature of the research cannot be mentioned. Many firms, for instance, have great difficulty in obtaining technical or scientific books from libraries because they are unwilling to have their names entered as having taken out such and such a book for fear the agents of other firms should be able to trace the kind of research they are likely to be undertaking. As another example, we may cite the case of industrial research laboratories, prepared by the Association of Scientific Workers. This contains particulars of industrial laboratories, approximate expenditure, the research workers employed, etc. In preparing it, 450 firms undertaking research were circulized. Of these, only 80 answered, of which only 35 gave particulars of expenditure, while 12 declined to give even the number of qualified workers employed. One firm replied, the names of our laboratory staff are never disclosed. Such secret methods would be really effective, however unethical, only if those turning out the secret research had a personal interest in its secrecy. But here the system defeats itself. The general suppression of the results of industrial scientific research by the firms concerned has a depressing effect on the research worker. If, either from stupidity or from a secure monopoly position, the firm does not consider it worthwhile to see that improved methods are used, then it is hardly worth the research workers' while to trouble to devise these methods or in fact to bother himself any more about the firm than his own personal advantage dictates. It is very rarely that the scientist is a director, or even an important shareholder in the firm. His interest in secrecy is usually limited to keeping his job and securing a moderate rise or a small or nominal bonus for any given piece of work. It is in fact somewhat dangerous to show too much promise in this direction, for fear of setting up a standard which it will afterwards be necessary to live up to. 
After a period of initial enthusiasm, a research worker who sees that little social or scientific gain proceeds from his work and is not receiving any pecuniary advantage from it, will not be at great pains to push his inquiries to uncomfortable lengths and is more likely to indulge in an effective system of bluff at the firm's expense. Lack of freedom One of the greatest disabilities of the industrial scientist is his lack of freedom. Most workers are on a contract basis. These contracts, which the prospective employee is usually too ignorant or too frightened to refuse, are designed almost entirely to protect the firm. A man's intellectual output is bought for a definite period. All his inventions and ideas, even if developed outside the works, belong to the firm. All patents must be surrendered to them at the rate of 10 shillings at a time, even when they may make thousands of pounds. Some contracts even go so far as to prevent the worker from taking a job in a rival firm, that is, any other firm in the trade, for two years after leaving employment. Effectively, this means that he is permanently bound to the firm, though they are not to him. Recently, an even worse abuse has appeared. Research workers are taken on with contracts definitely terminating at 30 or 40 years of age. They are used when they are young, bright and cheap, and then turned off with little prospect of employment. It is hardly worth stressing that this is not the way to get the best out of a scientific worker. The scientific ignorance of business executive cuts both ways. It prevents the scientist being properly appreciated or rewarded, but it also prevents the firm finding out how far its scientific staff is occupied in elaborately doing nothing in particular. University scientists visiting industrial laboratories are often amazed at the ignorance, not surprising in the circumstances, of the scientists employed but even more at the way in which this ignorance can impose on the heads of the firm. All the disadvantages inherent in government-directed laboratories also apply with added force to those of industry. While a large firm gains in funds available for research, it loses by corresponding developments of bureaucracy. The freedom of the scientific worker with regard to hours and holidays is just as effectively restricted, actually often to the detriment of the work. It would be of great advantage to an industrial scientist, for instance, to work for three or four months of the year in a university laboratory, but this is very rarely done. Even opportunities for visiting scientific congresses or going to scientific lectures are considerably restricted. One very large firm went to the length of arranging that lectures specially planned in a university for industrial scientists should be held out of working hours, consequently curtailing the time for discussion which was, in fact, more valuable than the lectures themselves. There is also a natural tendency towards an excessive amount of routine work and of work from which immediate results may be expected. Low standard. The general administrative inferiority of the scientist still further detracts from his being able to direct and control the general course of the application of his results, and this tends to produce a lack of interest in the work. 
The result of these conditions shows itself in a tendency on the part of the more ingenious and enterprising research workers in industry to drift back to university research, which they are generally willing to do even with considerable reduction of salary. Those with more pecuniary interests take minor managerial posts, and the remainder accept their position, carry out their routine tasks, and do not display any excessive activity or inventiveness. The net result is, of course, that the efficiency of the work in industrial scientific laboratories is exceptionally low, especially in regard to the relatively considerable expense in apparatus. Consequently, the potential value of scientific research to the firms is heavily underrated. Under the conditions of employment in industrial science, it is not surprising that industrial jobs rank in desirability at the very bottom of the scientific scale and often below school science teaching. Although there are a number of brilliant research workers who, for some reason or another, have entered and remained in industry, these are exceptional and industrial scientists on the whole do not represent the better grades of scientific worker. This tendency is reinforced by the methods of recruiting industrial scientists. For the most part, even in the bigger firms, the selection of industrial scientists is not made by scientists, but by the official responsible for all staff appointments. Consequently, appearance, social conformity, public school, ability at games are all considered as well as, if not before, academic qualifications. For the neglect of the last, there is a certain justification in that university teaching is, for the most part, of such a character that it does little or nothing to train its students for the tasks of industrial science. Thus, recruitment and conditions conspire to ensure that industrial science should be staffed mostly by amiable, gentlemanly, possibly industrious but certainly not able or enterprising workers. The present conditions of industrial science are not likely to be easily changed, as they are due to deep-seated causes. The primary one lies in the very nature of industrial production itself. Production for profit, as will be shown in the next chapter, inevitably distorts the application of science and hence the direction of research. Competition and monopoly between them lead directly to secrecy and to the throttling of fundamental research. A more immediate cause for the peculiarly unimaginative nature of industrial research is its control by men of purely commercial temperament, generally completely ignorant of science, treating its results as commodities and the producers of those results as hired workmen. There is reason to believe that in this respect the situation is far worse than 50 years ago. Especially with the big firms, control has passed from their founders, who had necessarily an understanding of science, to successors, who have little or none, while the setting up of new concerns of any size by scientists has been rendered practically impossible by monopoly conditions. Some indication of the extent to which this has gone is shown by an analysis of the directors of nine firms in the electrical and chemical industries which owe their entire existence to science, were founded by men of scientific abilities and which between them control more than three quarters of the industrial scientific research in the country.
Only 13 of the 114 directors have any scientific qualification, and these are in five of the firms, while five are in the same firm. Only one individual of all these directors is a man of known ability in the scientific world. Under such circumstances, the cynical attitude of scientific workers to the higher management is understandable. It is not only that the directors do not understand science, they are on the whole, on account of the traditions of the class to which they belong or would like to belong, actively inimical to the spirit of science. Scientific Instruments one great source of inefficiency in scientific research is the cost and character of scientific apparatus. Except for a small proportion of apparatus turned out by laboratory workshops, the scientific worker depends for most of his material on the scientific instrument industry. This is an industry which owes its very existence to science, though it also draws from two older industries, those of the glassmaker and the potter. Early scientific instrument makers were either professional clock or spectacle makers, or ingenious individuals with a natural bent for science who were forced to make instruments in order to support themselves and carry out researchers on their own account. To these men, science owes much. It was the first Dolland who discovered the principle of the achromatic lens on which is based the whole of modern astronomy, microscopy, and photography. Watts set up in Glasgow as a scientific instrument maker, and it was the repairs he effected to the university's steam engine model that enabled him to make the modern steam engine a possibility. Fraunhofer and Abbe were both in the optical glass trade. Until the beginning of the present century, however, except for optical instruments, the scientific instrument industry was on a relatively small scale, used methods of hand manufacture, and was generally in very close touch with the few scientists who used their wares. The spread of science into industry, however, resulted in an immensely increased demand for what were originally scientific instruments, but had now become industrial necessities, such, for instance, as all forms of electrical measuring instruments, emitters, etc. A further fillip was given to it by the popularization of wireless, which meant an immense consumer market for what would have once been called the most delicate and complicated scientific apparatus. The result was that we now have a relatively large scientific instrument industry with an annual turnover of some six million pounds, not counting the very considerable amount of scientific instruments made by electrical companies and the chemical ware from unspecialized potters. Thus, it can be seen that the industry must have an income at least three times that of scientific research itself, and that, therefore, it has ceased to be primarily dependent on it. Mass production. This, in some ways, has been a benefit to science. The greater demand for certain components of scientific apparatus has resulted in their production by mass methods, and this has so lowered their costs as to make a veritable transformation in laboratory technique. On the other hand, certain policies, only too prevalent in the scientific instrument trade, are very detrimental to laboratory work. Scientific instrument manufacture is now run on a strictly commercial basis and is consequently liable to the same abuses as ordinary business. Insofar as firms make apparatus for other parts of industry, the standard is high, though the price is often equally so, 
but in producing for public consumption or consumption by non-technical users, a great deal of the apparatus is unnecessary ornamentation and the price is even higher. The most flagrant case is in apparatus intended for the medical profession. Here, of course, there is a double record. The manufacturer knows that the doctor cannot possibly judge the real value of the article and prices it at four times the cost or over, but he is careful to give it an appearance of finish which is calculated to impress the doctor's patients and justify the charging of correspondingly inflated fees. The actual cost, for instance, of taking an X-ray photograph, including the overheads and depreciation, can rarely exceed three shillings, but a patient is lucky if he gets off under two guineas. High prices. When selling more specialized apparatus directly to scientific laboratories, other difficulties appear. The market, compared with the public market, is a small one, and the firms are disinclined to put themselves out about it. The result is that prices, though not relatively so high as for the more gullible public, are still sufficient to check sales and keep the market small, thus completing the vicious circle. Actually, much of the apparatus used in laboratories could be made on a mass production basis, and the price got to a fraction, often as little as one-tenth of the present price, even allowing an equal margin of profit. This has been done in the new scientific industry of the Soviet Union, and also here in the wireless industry. The old conditions are allowed to continue largely because it is no one's direct interest to put a stop to them. The tradition has grown up that scientific instruments must be bought, and no university has been far-sighted enough to invest in an instrument plant of its own, which would both supply its own departments and pay for itself quite handsomely into the bargain. Nearly all apparatus is bought by individual departments out of the grants and generally at the retail rate. The result is that in this way universities and research institutes are paying a large subsidy to the retailers which could easily be avoided if every university or group of institutes bought through a buyer at wholesale rates. There would probably be objections to this for, in one way or another, there are probably a good many commissions flying about. However, the result of such a policy would in the long run pay universities and manufacturers alike as far more apparatus would be purchased. The present state of affairs is one of the penalties of the haphazard growth of science and of its contempt for material things. There are usually fairly close links between instrument firms and universities, but in Britain at any rate the practice of gifts of apparatus from firms is rare and consequently there is little encouragement from the laboratory end to assist the manufacturer in improving his product. The result is that, particularly for physical, chemical and biological apparatus, the actual design is often many years out of date. Lack of coordination of research the inefficiency and the imperfect organization of individual research laboratories is by no means the most serious disability from which scientific research suffers. Even more important is the general lack of coordination between the different scientific institutes and between individual research workers in different places.
The fact is that the general organization of science and the communications between its various parts have remained at a primitive level and consequently fallen far behind the requirements of the enormous expansion of scientific activity which has occurred in the last 50 years. For the most part, science still retains as its only organizational forms the learned societies, which, though essential for its first development in the 17th century, are quite inadequate to deal with the problems of scientific advance of today. The essential defect of the learned society is that it is conceived of as a voluntary association of amateurs, each having complete freedom of operation and meeting for mutual edification and for arranging certain common conveniences, such as published journals, to take the place of private letters. Now, at one time, such associations represented a great and indeed a revolutionary step, as may be judged by the immense enthusiasm and the violent opposition that they aroused. The idea of a voluntary association of gentlemen of means and leisure is no longer adequate to cover the organizational requirements of modern science. Very few scientific workers in any country are now anything but salaried officials of universities, government or industry. Their apparent freedom depends to a large extent on their ineffectiveness or the ignorance of the ruling powers as the ultimate results of their work. Existing scientific societies do not, as we have seen, provide an adequate basis for organization, even less for initiative in the direction of research. They have become almost purely publishing houses and honorific corporations. Informal methods What organization of science there is, is almost entirely informal. Workers in any given field generally get to know one another personally and arrange among themselves, when they are on friendly terms, the kind of work each of them intends to pursue and the relation of one man's work to another. The system undoubtedly has its advantages. It avoids rigid rules and bureaucratic red tape, but it is at the same time liable to very grave abuses. It provides no check against the play of personal interests. Naturally, in science, there is less incentive to jobbery than in business or politics, but there is always some, for although scientific posts do not carry substantial salaries, the scientist attaches almost childish value to the title and prestige of the position. Bitter rivalries, sometimes personal, sometimes between the merits of different branches of science, are fought out with all the methods of private intrigue. As the money available for science is never sufficient to satisfy more than a fraction of the demand, perpetual scrambling goes on behind the scenes for what money there is. This is enhanced by the general secrecy that covers all these transactions. Any dealings, particularly with wealthy benefactors, are most carefully guarded until they can be revealed as a fait accompli. Anyone who is able to discover what is going on may be bought off by a share of the swag. The amount of energy which is put into securing, at other scientists' expense, money from a government department or a potential benefactor would, with an ordered organization, suffice to make such a compelling demand for such allocation for science that there would be enough for all. 
The result of this lack of system is that, together with examples of successful collaborations, we find others of overlapping brought about simply from lack of consultation. Lack of integration of different sciences. Far more important is the absence of intensive and conscious drive in science. This is becoming much worse as a result of the recent developments by which the different sciences have come to be intrinsically closer together. Now, informal methods of cooperation, though moderately successful inside each branch of science, almost completely break down between the sciences. There are far less occasions for members of different than of the same societies to meet one another, and when they do so, specialization has so far advanced that their common topics are likely to lie outside science altogether. Universities might be expected to supply some remedy for this state of affairs, but in practice, interdepartmental jealousies are often stronger than common interests, and a professor of physics may know far more of what is going on in a physics laboratory at the other side of the globe than he does of the chemical laboratory in the next building. The result of this is an enormous lag in the appreciation of the relevance of one field of science to another. For instance, chemists for a quarter of a century have failed to recognize that advances in physics and crystallography require not merely the revision but the complete recasting of the fundamental structure of their science. Nor have the mathematicians appreciated the extraordinarily rich fields offered to them in the recent studies of the development of organisms. One effect of this is to hold back science just at those very places where its advance is most needed, the regions between recognized sciences. Each faculty has developed its own informal, though effective, ways of raising money and finding men. Outside and between them such facilities can only slowly be built up, and without them discoveries even when made cannot be followed up. It is not usually recognized how much the rate of scientific progress is held up by the lack of such material resources. Apparatus and assistants do not make science, but without them it grows in a crippled way like a starved young animal. The real tragedy is that men with ideas in an unrecognized field are kept short of supplies until, as the result of many years' work, they have achieved results which attract sufficient attention, and only then when their inventive powers have waned, are they given scope. It is true that a man of sufficient ingenuity and determination can do good work on the very minimum of materials. Great scientists, such as Faraday and Pasteur, have shown this conclusively. But even then, advance is often held up for years, and for one such success, dozens of promising starters are discouraged and driven from active research. The lack of contact between sciences also effectively delays the development of technique inside each science. By an intelligently organized adoption of new techniques from physics, the operations of chemical analysis and synthesis might be shortened, in all, by a very large factor. In the normal course of development, such improvements will take between 10 and 50 years, by which time they will be obsolete in physics. What this means is that a very large fraction of the time and money spent on chemistry nowadays is sheer waste. Workers are spending weeks on jobs which should only take days. The gerontocracy. 
One pertinent objection which can always be raised to any criticism of the organization of science is that the guarantee of its efficacy is to be found in the character of the men of undoubted scientific achievement who hold high positions in the administration of research. In all professions, control by the aged is a debatable subject. The advantages of experience and comparative disinterestedness, which ensure the continuity of tradition and the avoidance of rash courses and overmuch self-advertisement, can be put on one side. Dislike of change, inability to seize opportunity, lack of contact with the current world, on the other. In science, however, which depends for its very existence on the discovery of new things and the making of new combinations, and where initiative counts more than experience, the disadvantages of age weigh more heavily than anywhere else. Particularly in the last 50 years, the advances in basic conceptions have been so rapid that the majority of older scientists are incapable of understanding, much less of advancing their own subjects. But nearly the whole of what organization of science exists and the vital administration of funds is in the hands of old men. It is true that in many cases they have the perspicacity to advance younger men of ability. But the system of favor and patronage is always liable to abuse and is in any case unbecoming to the character of science. The ability of a young worker is much better judged by his fellows in active science than by any committee of elders, however eminent. There is a further objection that under existing conditions eminence in science is often attained at the expense of breadth of outlook and general culture. It is partly to this that must be attributed the lack of understanding and initiative that official scientific bodies have shown in the wider questions of the social responsibilities of science. Need science be organized? A quite opposite objection to any reorganization of science is based on the recognition of this very danger of control by elder scientists. The existing anarchic state of science gives many opportunities to evade particularly obnoxious control. If objections are taken to the policy of one committee, another can be formed to do the same work under different auspices. It is felt that organization might put an end to these possibilities and perhaps more effectively than ever block unorthodox developments in science, through the danger of carrying over to that organization the principles of autocratic control. But this is not so much an objection to organization as one against existing abuse of such organization. Any new organization of science, if it is to be vital as well as effective, must bring with it the democratic principle which will ensure adequate participation in responsible control by scientific workers of every grade of seniority. The idea that science needs further organization is certainly one which is violently combated by many scientists. The supporters of the present state of affairs justify their attitude by appealing to the traditional freedom of the scientist. Each man is supposed to be a judge for himself of what needs to be found out and the best way of finding it out, and he is further supposed to be able to get hold of the means and to have the time for the investigation. But in the present state of science, these conditions no longer hold. 
Even if they did, the cooperation of other workers and the knowledge of taking part in a coordinated effort cannot fail to be of help in the work of any individual. How this could be done will be shown in later chapters. Scientific Publications As science grows, the facts on which it is founded and the way of building laws and theories from them depend less and less on the direct observation of nature by the scientific worker and more and more on the previous observations of other workers and on their methods of interpretation. The very instruments of science are, as it were, material embodiments of previously achieved theories. It is consequently of critical importance that the scientist at every stage in his work should be able to reach, rapidly and in a convenient form, the results up to date of all relevant scientific knowledge. This is the function of the system of scientific publication which has grown up with the development of science itself. It is at present an enormous and chaotic structure. There are in the world today no less than 33,000 different scientific periodicals, probably more, for this number was given in the last, 1934, edition of the World List of Scientific Periodicals. Besides these, there are an uncounted number of books, pamphlets and theses. Each of these periodicals fulfills, or attempts to fulfill, the need of scientific information in a particular field in a particular country. Some, such as the journals of the academies, cover all subjects and have a worldwide circulation. Others are the product of some single, highly specialized institute and are only with great difficulty available outside their country of origin. The production of scientific publications has long ago become so large that it is recognized that a scientific worker can only read a small fraction of the papers in what is itself a very small part of science. But how can he ensure that the papers he does read are those that are to be of the most value in his work, or how can he be certain that he is not in fact reduplicating work already done? For this purpose, there has grown up in recent years a vast system of abstracting, in which the contents of each scientific paper are reduced to a few lines. In spite of attempts at rationalizing, there is still an enormous amount of overlapping and gaps in abstracting work, and abstracts themselves have reached an unwieldy size. Thus, American Chemical Abstracts consists every year of three volumes of 2,000 pages each, with an index in addition of 1,000 pages. This situation is growing rapidly worse. The number of entries in Biological Abstracts has grown from 14,506 in 1927 to 21,531 in 1934. The burying of published work. The result is that it has become impossible for the average scientific worker who does not wish to devote the major part of his time to reading to keep up with the progress in his own field, and almost impossible for anyone to follow the progress of science as a whole even in the most general way. At the same time, a large quantity of good scientific work may be permanently lost because it was not appreciated when it was published, and subsequently everybody has been so busy in keeping up with recent publications that there has been no time to sift through the records of the past. 
In part, these difficulties are an inevitable result of the enormous growth of science, but in far larger part they are due to the lack of consideration which scientists are giving to the problem of communicating their results. The very bulk of scientific publications is itself delusive. It is of very unequal value, a large proportion of it, possibly as much as three quarters, does not deserve to be published at all and is only published for economic considerations which have nothing to do with the real interests of science. The position of every scientific worker has been made to depend far too much on the bulk rather than the quality of his scientific publications. Publication is often premature and dictated by the need of establishing priorities, itself an indication of the unnecessary struggle for existence that goes on inside the scientific world. The number of scientific journals is altogether excessive. Each one had at its inception a certain raison d'être. It was founded to express the results of some new science from a point of view other than the orthodox, but in the course of time these distinctions disappear and the journal remains. A great deal in science has been sacrificed to local patriotism or personal distinction. Owing to this, the circulation of the journals are all small and, as a large number of them never reach the libraries, of any but the most important universities and learned societies, their purpose is for the most part lost. The Cost of Publication The burden of this vast mass of publication is in itself a great handicap to scientific research. Apart from certain government subsidies, the cost of scientific publication is paid for by the scientists themselves. Very few journals, and those mostly technical, are run at a profit. The majority are supported by learned societies, and indeed put such a drain on their resources that they are rarely able to spend anything for research purposes. The cost of journals and books and subscriptions to learned societies are not usually reckoned as laboratory expenses, and the real salary of the scientist is, for this reason, always between 5 and 10%, less than what he nominally receives. Besides this, owing to the knowledge that, under present conditions, it is unlikely that all those who should be interested will see any particular piece of work, the practice has grown up by which each scientist sends anything up to 200 reprints of his work to selected people, which of course imposes on him an additional and often considerable expense. This sending of reprints is in itself a hopeful sign and may, as is suggested in a later chapter, point the way to an altogether better system of communication. But at present it is inefficient and costly, as there is no relation of demand to supply for any particular paper. In particular, reprints of papers which are recognized to be important are generally quite unobtainable after a lapse of as little as a year. It should be clear from what has already been said that the present system of scientific publication wastes both time and money and is a constant source of irritation to the scientists themselves. Efforts, it is true, are continually being made to improve it. A system of reports on progress in different fields of science is gradually spreading. The number of abstracting journals has been reduced and abstracts better classified, but these improvements hardly keep pace with the cropping up of new journals and the accumulation of unread papers. 
What is wanted is a far more drastic revision of the whole system of scientific communication. Some suggestions for this are contained in a subsequent chapter. Personal communication and travel. The chaos of scientific publication is not the only failure of adequate communication between scientific workers. There is a great deal in science that cannot conveniently, if at all, be included in publications. In all experimental science, the techniques for obtaining measurements are almost as important as the measurements themselves. And in a similar but less tangible way, the mental techniques of particular sciences, as apart from any general scientific method, are of crucial importance to scientific advance. Now it still remains true that in spite of the best system of publications that can be devised, physical and mental techniques can generally best be transmitted by direct experience. This is, in fact, the way that they have been for the most part handed on in the past. A new technique, or even a new science, is spread largely by the visits of foreign students to its place of origin and the setting up of subsidiary schools from which further personal transmissions can be made. But although this happens, it does not happen nearly enough. Facilities for travel and for work in foreign laboratories do exist, but they are very inadequate. Expense is a serious drawback to all but the fortunate few who achieve visiting or exchange fellowships. It is most difficult for those who need it the most, the workers who have three or four years research behind them, but have not a position which will give them enough to travel or live abroad on. As a result, techniques spread much more slowly than they need, and indeed rarely get through to the whole scientific world before they are superseded. It is a common experience in visiting laboratories to notice, at the same time, unsuspected improvements which have been in use for years, and obsolete techniques which have survived for as long a period. To carry on with obsolete methods, may often lead to the waste of years of effort, but this waste is inevitable unless much more rapid and direct personal means of communication between scientific workers is effectively organized. The Effects of Inefficient Organization It is extremely difficult to estimate the extent of the damage done to the progress of science by the organizational inefficiency of which we have spoken. There is no doubt, however, that it is at present one of the major factors retarding the progress of science. To put it in figures, the average efficiency cannot be much greater than 50% and may be as little as 10%. That means, as things are at present, something between 50 and 90% of the money and efforts devoted to science are wasted. That is not to say that if these sources of inefficiency were removed, science would advance twice to ten times as fast, because, under the present conditions of limited funds and recruitment, any substantial increase in the rate of scientific advance would bring it up against these limiting factors. The rapid growth of science in the last century is itself in part responsible for its present difficulties. The scientist has remained far too concentrated on the immediate work in hand to notice the slowly growing complexity of the organization in which he is working, and indeed, unless the difficulties appear in some form immediately hindering work, they are, for the most part, unnoticed. 
The very success of science is enough to mask from the eyes of the public and even from those of scientists themselves the waste of effort in achieving those successes. The scientist does his work, science advances, applications and inventions follow in its train. All this is seen. What is not seen is that the rate of advance could be far greater than it is at present, and that it could be maintained with far less waste of time and intelligence. There are three things worth bearing in mind in judging from outside the achievements of science. Firstly, science still does attract, by the intrinsic satisfaction it brings to its followers and by its apparent disinterestedness, a large proportion of the most brilliant minds of each generation. Secondly, science is easy, far easier than anyone outside it can imagine. Once its language is learned, advances, except at some critical sticking places, come almost of themselves. For the greater part of scientific work, a minimum amount of manual dexterity, industry and honesty is all that is required. The richness of possible discovery compensates and more than compensates for the inefficiencies that hinder the actual work. For the most part, it is an Aladdin's cave. Everything is there for the taking. Thirdly, it is natural to compare the efficiency of science today with that of other human activities. In such a comparison, science does not fare so badly, because in its general direction it is largely free from the grosser evils of economic and political life. Speculation, deliberate restriction, sharp practice and corruption, all symptoms of the crippling effect of vested interest in an outworn system. On the other hand, in detail the inefficiency of science simply reflects in an exaggerated form the inefficiency of the economic system under which it has reached its present development. In the commercial and industrial worlds there is, however, direct economic incentive to efficiency in management. Efficient methods of running a business, even though they cost more in the way of machinery or staff, pay because the savings on other costs is even greater. But science, although it is an ultimate source of profit in an industrial civilization, is in itself not profit-making. From the business point of view, science does not pay. Consequently, the waste of the lives of highly trained scientists on trivial or unnecessary work does not appear as a loss, while any expenditure to prevent that waste represents so much money that need not have been spent. The progress of science or the possibilities of its gift to humanity are no concern of the business world. In view of the lack of social or economic consideration it receives, what is surprising perhaps is not so much the inefficiency of scientific research, but the fact that it carries on so effectively and so brilliantly. Science in danger. Then why, it may be asked, do we wish an exception made for science? In a bad world, it does as well as most. The reason is that science is a unique product of human society which demands, and rightly demands, special consideration. On the continued progress of science depends not only the realization of the conquest of poverty and disease, but all the means of significant change in human society. Science is, after all, a delicate process. We do not know how much restriction and inefficiency it is able to withstand. More than once before in history, we have seen science flourish and die out. 
it may happen again. That is a risk neither science nor society can afford to run.